Okay, we're live. Um, welcome to the Criterion Collective. Uh, this is a presentation of the DOS Center for the Arts. The DOS Center for the Arts is a not-for-profit based in Pomona, California. We service Pomona and the surrounding areas, and now that the world is on the internet, we service the world. So we're really, really excited uh, to be joined by guests this week. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, film, as always. So this week is John Cantu. John Cantu is a film producer, writer, director, um, the writer and director of the Better Web series, uh, uh, the short film Retribution, the director of Las Capitadas's uh, Luna Lovers music video. He's also a film trailer editor for Universal Pictures and has done musical arrangement for Jordan Peele's Us. Um, it is my great pleasure to welcome on John Cantu. Uh, John, if you could introduce the film Rashomon and speak to, um, yeah, just uh, what it means to you. Wow. Uh, where, where, where does one begin? It is directed by the um, legendary uh, Akira Kurosawa, um, who's uh, kind of renowned as not only one of the greatest Japanese filmmakers, but one of the greatest filmmakers um, in the history of cinema. Um, it was uh, directed in 1950, uh, stars uh, Mafuni, uh Machiko Kiao, and uh, Masayuki Mori. Um, basically, it is sort of a period Chambara noir. And if you don't know what Chambara is, Chambara is basically the um, uh, subgenre of like sword fighting, samurai films. Um, Rashomon is interesting because it's coming right after uh, Kurosawa's done straight samurai films, early stuff before he does Seven Samurai and a lot of the other things like Yojimbo that he's known for of like these big swashbuggling action films. Uh, some of which that, you know, inspired Star Wars amongst other films. Um, but right before this, he was uh, doing um, urban noirs about modern Japan. And uh, so this is an interesting film in that it's a period noir. And it's basically the recounting of what happened in this grove where a samurai, his wife, and a bandit um, all had something happen. And all that you know is that uh, there was um, an assault and that the uh, samurai ends up dead. And so you see the story from the wife, the samurai, the bandit, and then eventually, uh, I'm sorry to spoil a 70 year old movie, but you see it from the perspective of this woodcutter. And what's even more interesting is not only are you seeing it from their perspective, these three perspectives, four perspectives, you're interpreting it through this trio of characters that's sitting at the Rashomon Gate, which is how the film gets its name. Um, now, the interesting thing about this film is none of the uh, testimonies line up. Everybody tells a very different story that has the same result, but um, basically implicates a different murderer. And so, this movie has had such an effect that there's actually a legal term now when eyewitness testimony doesn't line up that they call it the Rashomon effect. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I, I 
look at it as um, a film that really changed uh, my perspective on a lot of things, not just in terms of cinema, but in terms of what narrative storytelling accomplishes. I mean, philosoph it, it's both a philosophical and a spiritual film. It's not just an intellectual exercise. I mean, it's really about trying to understand the human soul. And um, it is a movie that kind of says, you know, what you, the first version of what you have heard could be utter bullshit. Right. You have to, you have to um, basically be a critical thinker and listen to everything and also consider who has the power, who's who gets to tell the story. And uh, based on all of that, what do you believe? And what's amazing about Rashomon, um, which I think makes it better than a lot of other de detective noirs, is it doesn't give you an answer. It doesn't say, like, it's the best whodunit because it doesn't really tell you whodunit. And that's, and so when you look at Rashomon, it really is a reflection of what you put into it. And I just don't know um, another film that has truly accomplished that. Um, in fact, you know, Akira Kurosawa's films have actually been famously remade into a lot of English language. Um, famously, uh, it's been an exchange of, they take a samurai story and make it a Western. Like right. uh, Seven Samurai became the Magnificent Seven. Um, you know, Yojimbo became uh, a fistful of dollars. You know, Sergio Leone basically blowing up the idea of a Western, you know, in Italy. And then this movie was actually remade. It was called The, the Outrage. And it starred uh, Paul Newman as the bandit, as a Mexican bandit. Oh, it is. Oh, oh, oh. oh. It, is, <laughs> it is. Just it like is. some kind of pain just covered his face, like I've never seen before. Oh, it's it's. I mean, it is terrible brown face. It is. I mean, so it's shot in black and white. It's actually the guy um, Paul Newman had this uh, really good collaborator named Martin Ritt, who did um, HUD and Ombre. Mm -hmm. um, he. he uh, he had this really famous uh, Chinese American cinematographer who's renowned as one of the best cinematographers oh, of all time. J J James, James Wong Ho, yeah. Yeah, so, the director, so, cinematographer yeah. of Sweet Smell of Success, one of the films we covered. That's right, yeah. that's right, he that's did that. That's memory. So, 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 he shot, so he also shot The Outrage. Nice, nice. Um, it's not a good movie, but it's shot really well. But. <laughs> But Rashomon itself has kind of been directly remade a lot of times. Um, Edward Zwick did it with uh, the Denzel Washington, Meg Ryan movie, Courage Under Fire, where he's mm -hmm. trying to figure out uh, what happened during some desert storm thing, if Meg Ryan deserves to be honored or something. And then uh, there was a John Travolta, Sam Jackson movie called Basic. Um, there's been several other Rashomon movies um, and by and large, with very few exceptions, the direct Rashomon movies, where they do like four different perspectives, mostly terrible. 
Well, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't Sam Jackson, wasn't there another Sam Jackson one with Tommy Lee Jones? And they had to figure uh, out like what rules of engagement. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Horrible. Oh, it's that it's, was fashion. Anyway, it, it, oh no, no, it is. It's a hundred. No, I remember seeing that in the in the theater with my dad. And I mean, more importantly than the political, I mean, well, not more importantly, but more clearly than the politics of taking Kurosawa's idea and completely misunderstanding it to make propaganda, even more so than that, they misunderstand the basic truth of Rashomon, which is that, you know, you don't know all you think you know. It's, it's through, you know, your lens of bias, it's through your lens of imperfection. Um, and through that process, you know, hopefully we understand more clearly what's really going on and whose voices are uplifted and whose get silenced. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one of the, the elegance of this film of Rashomon and probably the reason why it hasn't been able to be duplicated um, on other occasions is because it's so simple. We have three locations. We have uh, the gate, Rashomon gate, um, during the storm. We have the trial setting, which is just a, a wall, a blank wall, so it's very nondescript, and we're only given one camera angle of that location, which is very interesting. It's almost like um, otherworldly in how yeah. simple yeah. it is and how flat and, and, and just uh, the contrast of it. We have the shadow um, and the light, which is, you know, extremely bright, and then the forest. And the forest um, itself is really uh, meant to be a metaphor. You know, it's kind of like the idea, it delves with the themes of this movie. It's like, uh, you know, truth and lies, morality, immorality, society, and chaos. And I think the forest is, is really meant to be symbolic. It's kind of like, this is the place, this is the wild. There's no church in the wild. There's no order in the wild. You know, this is the place where truth goes to die or, or gets lost, you know, in, the, for, in the, the darkness of the forest. So this is where these characters, you know, inhabit and, and as they exit, then we try to piece out, we try to make sense of what happened there. But I think that the fact that there are three locations makes it very simple, clear, you know, easy to understand. There are also only a maximum of three characters on screen at a time. Um, we never get four characters. There's a total of something like 10 act, or no, maybe like seven or eight actors total in the film. Um, but we never get more than three of them in one frame. Um, so you see, even as we have the woodcutter and the priest um, at the trial uh, uh, witnessing someone else's testimony, if there are two uh, witnesses, there's only one of them observing. So it always balances out in three, which is really interesting. It's, it's that constant dynamic that's, that's always working throughout the film. And, and I really love that about this movie. This is one of those movies, you know, we talked about with the exterminating angel and um, uh, a handful of others. We talked about these kind of chamber play kind of movies, movies that would work really well on stage. And I think Rashomon is really one of those because of the limited locations, the limited characters, the fact that you have this, this atmosphere. And to speak to that atmosphere, I really love the opening quotes of dialogue of this movie. 
where the priest is saying, you know, war, famine, disease. It's been year <laughs> after year of disasters. Yeah. And uh, I, I just find that that line, you know, just so relatable. <laughs> well, what are you what are you even talking about? I, I, I can't imagine in these times. <laughs> in fact, oh. we, we've talked a lot about the film noir. It, film noir, is it a movement? Is it a genre? Is it a style? which is mm. the con and it's and it's an interplay that you know no one has ever come up with the definitive conclusion because there isn't one because as we were saying last time when we, we were discussing gilda uh rita hayworth uh you know uh, glenn ford and and um there is a style to noir and there there is a genre and there is a movement and this definitely i think is particularly not only ordinary characters and extraordinary circumstances, which is a common theme of noir. But mm -hmm. what you talked about, the, the, I mean, obviously with lighting, we wouldn't really talk about lighting mm -hmm. here because it's pretty much natural lighting. As uh, David was saying, it's all in natural settings. Yes, there are elements. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But like a movie called Border Incident, which mm -hmm. was filmed by the great John Alton, John Alton, um, he did the cinematography for it, and a lot of it takes place in external settings. Yes, there are some applications of the film noir lighting, but for the most part, it's very naturalistic. It's intended to be naturalistic. Yeah. Film noir, generally speaking, you can find yourself in circumstances where film noir is naturalistic, but harsh lighting indoors, something that makes you feel entombed or entrapped is a very common, what we consider noir. So this would not be a typical, typically, you know, filmed noir, lit noir, shot noir film. Um, that said, I completely agree that it carries the film noir elements and it's certainly within the era of the, you know, book and but we say, you know, from 41 to 58, from Maltese Falcon to Touch of Evil. That's, you know, our genre of noir, the era of the genre. Now, I think as you guys were talking, I think one of the reasons that Rashomon succeeds where others fail in terms of multi, multiple points of view. What I find interesting is the points of view are not driven by something external. The ones, the films we mentioned that sort of tried to copy, you mm. know, or, or embrace the Rashomon element of multiple points of view seem to make those choices based on something external, whether it was uh, an assassination or if it was a car accident, or if it was an earthquake, or if it was a political intrigue. What makes Rashomon, I think, so fascinating is it seems to me it's, what Kurosawa does is he gives us the idea that it's the external circumstances initially that create these different points of view, but in reality, it's the internal motivation of the characters. Right. Yes. That's what yes. really produces those, you know, why, the, why would a woman who's just been assaulted, why would, what would motivate her? She's motivated by her own sense of what is dignified, what is honorable, or even what matters to her at one point, one point of view is he's just, I'm so sick of him. He's boring. <laughs> it's like, I'm sick of this. Yeah. I'm sick of being a wife. I don't want to be a wife anymore. Yeah. You know, or another, you know, that's one perspective. And then of course there's other perspectives, you know, what's honorable, I have to kill this person because I have this reputation or what's honorable. I have to die because 
my wife has been violated. It's what Kurosawa does that other filmmakers don't seem to have done in this circumstance is find the, the really deep motivation, even the character. And you know, it's interesting, there is a whodunit element that we can be fairly sure of, which is who stole the pearl handled, handled dagger. Yeah. Because yeah. pretty much there's an admission of, uh, you know, about that. And so if there's one who done it element we can kind of latch onto, it's that. And I was so fascinated by the char that character saying what was truly tragic about this event. Because at the beginning, you get the sense that what was truly tragic was the violence. But mm -hmm. by the end, the sense that you get is what's truly tragic about it is that no one was really honorable. There was no, there was a loss of innocence. There was a loss of innocence for this character, even within himself, yeah. because of the action he perpetrated. And so that's the real tragedy, is this loss of innocence, this loss of a sense that there is any real honor in the world that we're yeah. all seeking. That's so fascinating to me. So I, I actually wanted to comment about that really quick because um, I agree you know, for all three that they have um, a sense of honor. Um, but something that was really struck by me, everybody talks about how great the Shiro Mifune is and no question, he's one of the greatest actors that ever lived. He's Kurosawa's um, De Niro um, to his Scorsese. But I was really struck watching The Wife's Tale this time in every single um, instance, except for possibly the samurai's recounting and let's be honest his bias is probably very clear about trying to save his honor after he allowed himself and allowed his wife to be you know victimized by a he was over he's a samurai who was overtaken by a bandit because he was trying to get cheap deals on swords Right, right. He leaves like, her. He leaves no her sitting there in the. You know, if it hadn't been the bandit, it could have been somebody else. Like, he, what are you he leaves her on this horse, and she has to. You know, then it's like, oh, we have to go find him, and then he shows. Yes. You know what he's done. You know, it's like in every situation you realize, okay, in every account it seems to be he's yeah he's pretty much abandoned her for a trivial sort. <laughs> so so he's already messed up, but. The wife in every single um, story, I kept, um, and uh, Machiko Kao's performance is just so amazing. All, all four, all three of the leads basically have to create four separate characters and four separate performances based on their perception. But That's in every, but in every instance, um, she's motivated by honor too, but also survival. Right, just right. like and so like and even at the, even at the end you know uh, as the woodcutter you know basically uh describes how she just lays into um both both the her husband and the bandits um hypocrisy um of not even being able to meet the bare minimum of their standards of masculinity um, which is also why I think this is better than most film noirs. It's because usually you don't get that kind of complexity in the femme fatale or whatever. Um, but uh, it's interesting every single time she's coming from a place of survival. And also, um, as we talk about that, yes, this is a film noir, 
in every single retelling, another thing that really, you know, struck me watching it this time is that we switched genres. Like the yeah. bandits, the bandits story is really swashbuckly music. You know, it's, it, I mean, it, I love that shot of him going to, like later that day. And then you have that wide shot of him like riding on the horse and it's to like oh, pirate right. music. <laughs> And then, again. Yes. And then you cut back and, th and then you cut right back to him and he's and, and there's no music and he's just like telling he's talking to us the court without any like, like, like there's no music whatsoever. And then every time it goes back to his story, you kind of get that, you know, adventure embellishment music. And then from the wife's perspectives, it, it's the music gets more kind of melodramatic melodramatic yeah that was mm. my and, and then the samurai uh it's just sad it's yeah. it, it's it's just ethereal and haunting um but then what's the music when we hear the woodcutter nothing there's no music <laughs> no music wow, that's interesting yeah um David, come on john yeah, yeah, so I want to, I'm, you know, like, you know, in this movie, it's, you know, it's a big mystery, right? But I kind of reveal my own bias because I tend to believe the woodcutter. Like, I tend <laughs> to believe every word he said. Like, you know, because, like, you know, like, because uh, uh, people are no good, you know? I think you're the commoner slash the beggar because... Oh, no, uh, he's... You know. He's a shit talker, yeah. <laughs> but but he does not have the investment that the other three characters have. So there, I leaned toward that, although I still looked for his own bias. And obviously his own bias, particularly in, in the ultimate result that he's concealing. Yes, I, you know, did take this, you know, spoilers. But um, I, I did take this pro handle dagger I have to admit you know his weeping over that loss of innocence and yes not even I can say that despite the fact that I mourn this loss of innocence and this lack of dignity or lack of heroism I'm just as guilty I have to accept that I'm just as guilty as the rest but I think yes in terms of the perspective of this incident between these three characters whereby the woodcutter is like the unseen fourth set of eyes and and perspective i think yeah he has he has except for the dagger situation he's one character of these three characters plus him you know in terms of his perspective that he does not have as much of a motivation to be dishonest about what really happened the other three have a stake have an investment yeah. in what really happened here you know yeah he doesn't well, have the same investment What's interesting about the woodcutter is that, yeah, he, he, we are presented the idea or we could easily conclude that his, uh, his telling is the most objective because he has the least at stake, as, as you mentioned. Um, we have the absence of music. So that kind of creates the feeling of documentary um, mm -hmm. that we're not, um, you know, the, mu the music, as John was pointing out, it, it creates genre, it creates artifice, it's, it's stylistic, right? So the absence of music would be indicative of, you know, the natural world. Um, so we could conclude there are a few things that line up more exactly um, in his story that don't in the others. But something that I was thinking about watching it this time 
is that something that seems more realistic in his storyline is kind of the absence of nobility and how scared everyone is. But if you think about it, his whole character trait is not wanting to get involved. And, and he has this intense feeling of guilt. So in watching it this time, you know, his guilt for stealing the dagger, maybe his guilt for letting it happen, uh, who knows, right? So I was thinking about it this time is that could he actually be, um, oh, what is that psychological word? Projection. Uh, projecting his own fear, his own cowardice, cowardice onto yeah. these characters. Yeah. Well, and also yeah. his, his moral disgust. I mean, wh like, what does he say throughout the entire movie? It's like, they're liars. It's all lies. It's everyone's lying. So he's, he's morally disgusted. And, and as you say, you know, with, with himself. And that, you know, I, I always, you know, would say that that sword fight was probably the most realistic sword fight of all time because everybody's <laughs> terrible. But I mean, as I was watching it this time, I mean, you see how the samurai is just flailing about how they, you know, how they use so great with camera movement, lateral movement, lateral movement. And it's not until mm. like the third pass that they start going toward each other. Mm, but, yeah. but even then, like, you're telling me that this, this bandit was really hyperventilating for the entire fight. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, even in there, I see, you know, the, the woodcutter probably has his own embellishments. The woodcutter's probably like, everyone's cowards, everyone's terrible. Look how pathetic everyone is. And, you, and the lesson of Rashomon is you still have to remember that unless, unless there's a video, unless you, like, you can objectively see what happened, you're seeing through somebody else's eyes. Yeah. That's very Lynchian too. I mean, I just realized that they, in addition to, I know Scorsese and I know um, others have been very influenced uh, by by uh, Kurosawa, but I'm I'm thinking now about how Lynch plays a lot with that, especially in movies like Lost Highway. And as you guys are talking, what occurs to me too is where we get at the truth. Again, this is what makes this movie so freaking brilliant. One of the ways I was thinking about this, how we can get at the truth, is by knowing the different characters' motivations. So even if for example, the wife's account isn't realistic, isn't truthful, isn't completely factual, certainly not objective, but her retelling tells us something about her perspective, even mm -hmm. if it's not accurate. And that's true of all the characters. The bandits need to feel very masculine and also very animalistic. I mean, look at how he even that his character is so, right. He he's, yeah. he walks around. He stalks almost like he's like a lion or yeah. a tiger. His movements, hisses, are, yeah. his physical movements, resemble more of a jungle animal than a man. It's so like even when he tells the story, he's, like, <laughs> he's just, yeah, and yeah. she fought me. I've never seen such a fight in a woman. You know, yeah. you can tell that's his fantasy coming forward. Mm. You know, whereas some elements of that might be true, but then he's bringing forward this tremendous like exaggeration and he's the character of exaggeration if anybody is, because you even watch him talk, you watch him laugh, you watch him, you know, 
move around the, the, the forest. Um, and the woman has the motivation, like they're saying, oh, look at her and her tears, her tears, look at her cry. She's crying because she has to keep her honor. She has to act as though, you know, this was, this was a full on assault for her. Whereas in some versions, the implication is she wants to go away with the bandit. You know, she, she actually wants to be, she wants to be swept away. She kind of wanted this to happen, you know, or some such thing, which I don't even want to quite get into all of the things that we could talk about where that's concerned, because that just gets crazy, but it's awful. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. Either, no matter how we look at it, it's pretty awful. (laughs) I mean, especially considering it's, it's eighth century Japan. I mean, you know. Yeah. Speaking of that, I think in, in one of those stories, um, yeah, she it, it, speaking of survival, she's put into this situation where you could read it in the femme fatale way where she's evil and she's just, you know, scheming and this and that. But I think in a way you could see it that she kind of realizes that one of them has to die in order for her honor to be restored. Um, so mm-hmm. either Tajumara, Tajumura uh, has, to, has to be killed by the samurai or, uh, or vice versa you know, so that they can go on, they could, uh, you know, sweep this under the rug and lie about it. She has to have, uh, one of them has to die in order to balance it out. And she has to be able to go with one of them. Because I think, you know, we're, we're in a situation here in feudal Japan where her options are severely limited. Severely. So as, as a woman that she has to, um, she needs a man to survive in this um patriarchal you know heavily patriarchal society um so i think she's put not so much i mean in one of as you pointed out gene in one of the scenarios yeah she was bored and she was hoping you know to escape her life um but i think yeah i think it's the woodcutter's version that you get the sense of like well what can she do she has to you know she has to find some way of escaping this situation and, and the choice uh, of the costume, I mean, it's white, it's silk, I mean, the hair, the hair is done so well, it's like, how would this woman ever survive outside, and, and really, it's like, and, and how would the, and how would the bandit care for this very body <laughs> either? Now, something else that we haven't talked about, too, which I find really interesting, in none of the stories, here we have a samurai who has a sword, okay, he has yes. a sword, Yes. There's also a dagger, okay, yes. and we never see this man who's tied to a tree doing this, <laughs> trying to get out, trying to, we never see that in any no. of the versions. We see him actually, we're, we're meant to believe that he sat not struggling, perhaps it has something to do with his, his honor, mm-hmm. above his wife's honor, maybe that's what she's sick of. Yeah, because his honor comes first. Because he literally, he's you know tied, you know. Except, ex, except oh, remember no. when the remember when the wife says, you know, oh, the more right. he, the more he struggled, the, the the deeper they they you know <laughs> yeah. the ropes dug in, and she. But we never again. saw that. We, we hear never saw, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We never actually exactly. see him. You know, ever try? He's got a, you know different utensils, <laughs> tools that could possibly. Yes. And make an attempt how can i you know get out of this yeah we don't actually see it you're right we only hear that in her story 
And her story we know is motivated by her trying to maintain a certain honor where there is no honor. That's interesting too, you guys, as you've brought up too, that what occurs to me is that this whole theme of like, the stories want to reflect what honor means to each of these characters, including the woodcutter. You know, he's boss, he's called out at the end, but I know you're the one who stole it. You know, he didn't even admit to that. You know, so it's like everybody actually telling their story. If there's one motivation or one thread or through line, it's everybody wants to maintain honor by their own definition of honor. And even, yeah, and even the, 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 um, the, the commoner who basically, uh, you know, calls him a hypocrite, slaps him across the face and everything. I mean, he's just taking a blanket from a baby. Like, of, of, of course, he's like, well, you took this dagger off this. this it's like, not the same. Yeah. He's the only he, honest guy, though. He's the only honest guy. Well, the priest. Well, well, the priest is wait, 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 wait. I, I vote to let Matt speak. He's the only honest guy, uh, uh, the commoner. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying honesty is overrated. I mean, like, you know, like honesty in service of what? You know what I'm saying? So, like, um, just because you're honest doesn't mean you're not like you're horrible. So, I mean, like, uh, but but I would say of everyone, uh, the commoner is the only honest one. He he has no pretense of like guarding honor. He has no pretense of like being like I'm, you know, this good guy. Now look at me as I steal this blanket from a baby. But I'm bringing no <laughs> he's very he's very upfront about um what he's doing but but anyways i mean, I, I, I don't know i was <laughs> i was going with that but uh no i mean the, the characters of the commoner the priest um you know i don't know if we really discussed that that much but um i mean that that those are the things that always kind of annoy me though a little bit about kurosawa films is there's always like there's always like some guy that like runs up in a kurosawa film he's like what does this mean? <laughs> you know, like we're all blind men walking yeah, to the edge of a mountain. Oh, you know, like and so, like um, you know, but that I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seems to be kind of a common <laughs> thread. But um, other people like that. But me, me I, I mean, the one I really liked was uh, was Thrones of Blood. You know, oh yeah, but mm -hmm. because you have the witches, right? And they're and they're they're saying that you know people are horrible, and they, they give their they give their big speech, and. uh and that's what it confirms. There's no, there's no redemption. There's no like, but maybe people aren't. No, there's just, it, it is. <laughs> well, what about the priest though? What about the priest who says, well, I, priest, want believe, I, want I want to believe, I want to believe in, in mankind, you know? And you, so the woodcutter takes the, yeah, that's what I like. He, he, he says that men are weak. And that seems like something you could get on board. A statement right. that you could But then support. he's proven wrong because the woodcutter takes the baby and does the right thing, you know? <clears throat> so but like, how do we trust this uh -huh. woodcutter? Like, you know, like that, that's the real question. Why did the priest allow this dagger stealing guy to walk <laughs> off the baby? Well, the implication yeah. is he steals the dagger because he's already, what, got five, did he say five or six children already? Yeah, yeah. he's got six yeah. kids. We're given, right. we're given sort of the kind of the sort of the Kantian morality, the kind of the Les Miserables morality is, I did it to feed my family. You know, I, maybe I'm a thief, but I did it to feed my family. So we've been maybe we've been uh, unjustifiably uh, unjustifiably you know lumping in the woodcutter with all these other liars this whole time because he was stealing the dagger to feed his family. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, well, I think the three main characters, the woman's the most sympathetic though because you know there's these external these are the external factors as to why she's lying. You know. Yeah. There's these external factors that like if she like hers is the only one that's like dependent uh, on on like um, 
on, on survival and like what's going to happen next to me right and like you know the, the the bandit's trying to protect an image about himself he's not even pleading his own innocence he's not even trying to get away with it he just he's just trying to like um you know like he's just trying to like have stories told about him after he's dead you know like yeah and, and, and those stories to be like he was the fiercest bandit in the land he struck down a samurai and his wife wanted to run off with him but he was like no you know like, like <laughs> that's what he wants those you know stories told about him the samurai i mean the samurai his own recounting is so horrible i mean to me I, it's actually the most despicable of the three it does seem it does seem ego grandizing doesn't it like coldly ego grandizing well, right? you know, he says like i could forgive him because because she was like you know like you know yeah he raped my wife and then she and then she was like come away with me he's like i'll kill her for you he's like oh i forgive him now like what a terrible like yeah. what a terrible <laughs> yeah, a terrible train of thought that, like, that's a terrible yeah. terrible train of thought that's a terrible like for your mind to be like uh that, 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 that's terrible math and so yeah. um and so uh yeah i think of, of the three he's actually the worst yeah. um but yeah. I think one of the things counting of it anyways. His 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 motivations do seem motivations to be most do. self the most self-driven. You know, he's he's sort of he's like and, and that's ironic because of course we know, as David pointed out, if this you know, this is eighth century Japan, uh, the, you know, our wife has certain many limitations. Our samurai is thought to be the honorable one. So maybe that's why we're given to, but Kurosawa says, you know, he's actually the least honorable because he's the most selfish. He's the most ego grandizing. If he were a character in Mexico or Spain, he would be the bullfighter. He would be the, he would be the arrogant bullfighter character. He yeah. just, he's supposed to be the one that everyone hails, but in reality, he is so, so self-driven. He's actually He's completely selfish and self-serving to the point where he'll throw his own wife, you know, under the tractor, so to speak, and 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 and, and, and still be focusing on his own honor, right? His own right. motivation for 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 you know to be aggrandized or whatever. Yeah. Also, yeah. we we know he's lying. How do we know that? That's a good question. I don't know. So. Um, if there's any element of the samurai mystique that's been done almost to parody, it is seppuku. Mm. The samurai stabs himself in the chest. In ritual suicide, you don't stab yourself in the chest. You disembowel yourself and usually oh, a, a second right. chops, chop, chops your head off. But even, even without a second, you still disembowel yourself and you just die of massive blood loss. So, wow. but why does the samurai do that is because there's no other way his death. I mean, obviously, if, if you know, if we're in modern day CSI and all that crap, then uh, we can determine whether it was the sword or the dagger. But, mm. but, you know, the court as, as we are in 8th century Japan, it's like, oh, he got stabbed and he's, he's dead. Um, and then the dagger's gone. <laughs> but the fact that he stabs himself going downward into his chest, I have never in any other depiction of, you know, seppuku seen a suicide like that. <laughs> that would be hard to do, actually. It's, it's I mean, you're going through, it, it's almost impossible, like to actually hit your heart through your breastbone in that particular, it, it would be terrible. 
Yeah. Um, and so that's, uh, as I was watching that, the, it is possible that I could be wrong, but just given how terrible he is in every other aspect of his, <laughs> as Matt was saying, I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. That dude's lying about killing himself. You know, what's interesting too, as you're talking, John, I'm remembering, do you guys all remember how our samurai tells his story too? Wasn't that cool and very interesting? Oh, that's oh. great. I wanted, what yeah, a brilliant yeah. way to the employing the medium to right. tell the story and her motion. Again, it was so interesting to watch her, you know, character and motion, the way the characters move their bodies, every single one of them. Do you notice that how important that is to the character? Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? It tells yeah, really, so much. I really love with the medium. We get the this wind. Uh, we get these jump cuts. Her gown that she wears. Her costuming. We have um, the voiceover of a male uh, voice over over her own uh, spoken dialogue. Um, and I think what's so interesting, so it's, you know, she's very frightening or disturbing. She creates this uh, unsettling mood and the music, as John pointed out, really reinforces that. Um, but something that I think is really interesting about this whole framing device, right, is that it's a device within a device. And I think even one of the characters, when they hear about, or when they say, oh, what did the medium say? They say, oh, you know, they dismiss that, right? So there's already this notion of, you know, dismissing that separating you know the truth from the fiction um but i think something interesting too is that um so in using the medium in using the afterlife using spirit testimony very often in in film with ghosts or with uh you know the 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 the, the, the afterlife what have you, is that that's con typically considered reliable testimony. This is usually the person from beyond the grave who gives the truth. Um, this is the impartial observer. But what I love about this film is that it's not, this is, as John's pointing out, this is someone who is clearly lying. The voice from the grave is, is unreliable. Um, so I think that's another one of these pillars that Rashomon, you know, knocks out in this film which would give another reason for the priest to feel so uncertain about everything that's going on is that, I mean, the whole fact that they're at this gate that's collapsing, that's half collapsed. So that very much is supposed to be a metaphor for society and something, <laughs> you know, it's always said about this film is that it's supposed to be a post-World War II metaphor that the gate is supposed to be representative of, um, you know, post-war uh, Japan uh, perhaps uh, showing the the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki being a metaphor for that in some way. Um, so that's not clear, but you can definitely tell that on a metaphorical level, it's supposed to represent something of the collapsing of um, cultural norms or of society or of morality, that this is a time where all of these are, things are changing. So to include shamanism, an ancient uh, Japanese religion through this medium, we're um, given this sense that that these norms are collapsing, that people are losing their faith and their trust in many of these things. Decivilization, as it were. You know, it's interesting because as you're talking, suddenly I'm thinking about a lot of the the 
Renaissance paintings where you see ancient Greece or ancient Rome. And when we see this fall of civilization, we often see these kinds of uh, archways, mm. uh, things that kind of give us a sense of going into in going into what we think of the city as civilization, but it looks like it's in ruins. You know that there's always some kind of decline or collapse happening, and this is this is like a cinematic version of that. Those paintings, if you look mm. at all of those classical paintings depicting the, the decline and fall of, of the Greek civilization, of the Roman civilization. It's a similar, it's a similar visual, isn't it? You know, you can yeah. almost picture it now where it just, it, you know, the, it looks like it's crumbling. It literally looks as if something is crumbling. And you're right, like it's symbolic of the fact that this sense of, of hope in humanity, of an innocence or a goodness or a true mm. honor is crumbling before our very eyes. If I remember correctly, maybe you guys can speak about this, but if I remember correctly, there's even, there is a point where someone puts into question whether even the medium, something to the effect of the, you know how these people are. Right, right. And to the medium too. Yeah. You know, that maybe there's some of this is a bit of performance so that they can kind of keep their vocation. You know, <laughs> there's a bit of performance involved, a bit of drama on their part that maybe you wouldn't trust it. So you're right, every character is then put into question. And even the priest is challenged with what, well, how can you, how can you actually believe in the goodness of mankind? You know, right. you must be horribly naive, look around you. And of course, we're, as you see, as you said, we're seeing this whole collapse taking place before our very eyes. So everybody's put into question. Everybody, everyone's motives, everybody's beliefs, and, and all of civilization as a result is called into question. Yeah. I actually yeah. wanted to speak, to speak to something really quickly before I forget. Uh, my, my friend uh, who actually right now lives in Japan um, and has over the past, I guess, 12, 13 years, uh, his Japanese has gotten way sharper than mine. And one of the things he says is, uh, or that he told me when I told him I was doing this podcast is he was like, it's even better when you know um, basic Japanese because you see all the nuances in their speech. Um, the woodcutter has a very, um, uses a, a lot of com uh, common phrases. The priest in his speeches uh, shows that he obviously has some sort of education. Um, and then the, you know, the, the commoner, you know, who comes in, uh, is using a lot of uh, vulgar expressions, which we don't really get in our translation. Um, apart from, he said, there's a lot, it's, it's, people don't speak like that in Japan right now. There's a lot of, you know, the English equivalent would be like these and thous is, um, is kind of what happens language wise. Um, I think it just speaks more to how, how great Kurosawa is that even without that level, they're still so richly defined. That's so interesting. So not only the, do the movements of the character do a lot to define the character, it's their speech, it's the way, yes. the, the, their usage of language defines the character too. That is really interesting. I would That's say that the, the priest, um, you know, he, 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 he has this concern with morality, you know, he's a religious figure, 
But I think it is interesting to note, and, and like uh, John was pointing out with, with his speech, the patterns of his speech, is that his welfare, his, his, his job is tied to this class society. So part of his purpose is to uphold the honor of the samurai. So I think it's, you know, it's no coincidence that his only firsthand testimony is witnessing, oh, just, you know, how wonderful they were, you know, going by, what a magnificent samurai, what a beautiful samurai wife, you know, um, just how wonderful and his versions of events. And I think largely one of his biggest concerns is, um, the collapse of this society or upholding the values of this society, whatever it is that most deeply troubles him. So I think his concern is with um, the absence of truth. I think the what the woodcutter is, what makes him so compelling is that he, he isn't concerned with people lying so much as I'm, I think he's even doubting his own memory or he's doubting, mm -hmm. I think he might be doubting reality itself. He's kind of wondering, you know, how can all of these stories be reconciled? Is there even such a thing as objective reality? Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the monk's very concerned about people lying. The woodcutter is concerned for his own mind or, or you know, if, 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 that, if that is even true. What do you think about that, Matt? I think that the that Kurosawa is the woodcutter, or he's the priest, or he's some kind of combination of the two, which is like <laughs> the thing that annoys me. The, the same thing that annoys me with Dostoevsky novels. Like they always end with like the last 10 pages being like, and come to, you know, come to your senses and be a good person. It's like, fuck that. Like, give me everything that I love it. I love it. This is the question. What, 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 what? Well, what was it then? Was it then? Everyone got mad at Cooper. Two people, two people got really mad at Kubrick, right? Stephen King and the guy that wrote the Clockwork Orange, right? The the real. Author. Oh right, right. Yeah. Burgess, yeah. Kubrick absolutely improved that bullshit. Like, cut out the last ten fucking pages. Fuck that. You're trying to like make everything like no, but it was really good. We're all good all along. Bullshit. Well, you cannot give me all this and then like end like that. No, 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 no. And so like, that's kind of like. um well, let's talk about the well, let's talk about the ending because yeah. I, 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 I have something to say about that before you go forward. Oh, okay, I but think the question, the provocative question here yeah. is, can ideals survive the truth? That's the question. Not with those people. <laughs> you know, those fucking people on display. They absolutely can. No, they absolutely can. But they, it requires that people be good and do good and be good to one another. And those people did not fit that criteria. No, not with them. What complicates things, as we've been talking about, though, is that their society actually reinforces values that we think of as immoral, right? Their honor is bound to, you know, such a situation, such a disgusting situation as that a rapist could be, you know, if, if killing his victim could be more honorable than his victim. I mean, yeah. so, you know, That's this is true. such a backward. And, and, we're, and we're given the sense he walks away from it, don't we? We're given the sense that after he tells his story, where were there consequences? No one says, oh, and, and then the bandit was hung or, 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 you know, put to capital death because he raped this woman and then possibly killed the right. samurai, right? We don't get that sense of what is his moral punishment. We're not given that. 
right? Yeah. yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, and I know John was about to go on to something of importance that import that has to do with all of this. No, no, no. That's that's all really. I mean, that, that all kind of pertains. I mean, I, I will say, as I've thought about this movie more, especially in the last four years, if there is like like all art. Um, especially this movie, it's a mirror and you get out of it what you put into it. Yeah. And I think the one dangerous um, sort of thing you could take away from Rashomon is that there is no truth that, you know, um, even Robert Altman did an intro for this um, where he said, you know, the proper interpretation of this is that all of it is true and none of it is true, which is the art of art. And I was just like, oh my, like, the first time I saw that, you know, 18 years ago, I was like, wow, how deep. Now I like listen to that, you know, after, you know, nearly uh, four years of this bullshit. And uh, I go, wow, that sounds like some white people shit. Like, there is no, there is no, there is no truth. That sounds like some shit. Almost like apologetics. That sounds like like an apologetics. Yeah, that's interesting. That that sounds like something Robert Altman needs everyone to believe is true. And therefore, like the the, the many abuses and crimes of Robert Altman (laughs) uh, will not, should not become under judgment since we're all so flawed and we're all so terrible. And therefore, I, Robert Altman, like dropping the curtain on MASH on someone who didn't know it was gonna happen, um, am not that bad, you know, because we're all bad. And so Robert Altman's not bad. You know, like, you know, <laughs> that sounds like something Robert Altman needs to be true. I mean, I, I know yeah, a guy like that. And, 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 and his first name is John. His last name I'm not gonna reveal right now, but, but David knows. <laughs> 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 Damn, He's laughing, he knows. You got me. You know what he blocked you me on Facebook. Me. So John yeah. Martinez, right? So this oh, guy, he oh, oh, the entire oh, okay. world, right? So yeah. that like, so that we're all bad, so that nobody's bad. Yeah, go on. So, but, one, but what I was kind of curious about is that you mentioned earlier that Toshiro Mifune is like, a, is Akira Kurosawa's um, like Robert De Niro, et cetera. And so we did, we started this whole series with uh, Ingmar Bergman's uh, The Seventh Seal, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, Ingmar Bergman worked a lot with uh, uh, Max von Sindo a lot, right? Yeah. So, you know, with Max von Sindo, you get a, you get a certain kind of character type. And, and, you know, every now and again, they kind of veer from that, right? Um, and with De Niro, you get a certain character type. Um, later on, Scorsese did a lot of work with uh, DiCaprio. And you get the very kind of character type with the kind of a DiCaprio arc where in the beginning, he doesn't really know much. And he's learning something. He's very interested. And by the end, he's like the most corrupt, like, you literally said, you, uh, when he doesn't know much, you literally sounded like DiCaprio there. <laughs> like, what are you really trying to say? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, that's it, it, nice too, John. You did a good head tilt. I gotta yeah, say. You know, he, yeah, the little off, thing, the little oh, thing. Yeah, it's it, it's off. it's like it's like a young Nicholson. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a sweet. Nicholson. Oh, it's so eerie to watch the young Nicholson go. Yeah. <laughs> he starts Terrifying. off as like this, like a good student, right? He starts off as the good student. And by the end, he's like standing in front of something burning or he's running away. It's sure. can, it's Wolf of Wall Street. It's like every single DiCaprio, sure. DiCaprio art. Corrupt right? master compared to the, the, the innocent sage. Yeah. So, so you're going to say something about Mufune, I'm well, guessing? Mufune, what is Mufune's art? So this guy, like, you know, mm-hmm. the most consistent yeah. thing that Mufune shows up in is always this guy who's like totally full of shit, pretending to be like, except for you, Jimbo, right? Almost all of them is where this guy is like 
full of shit, and then you like realize throughout it, so like you take like a, a but that samurai. Yeah, yeah. In the, isn't he very honorable in the Hidden Fortress? I think that would be an exception. So that's the thing. There's actually a Criterion um, documentary about Mifune um, yeah. that uh, is really compelling, and I, I think what's uh, Mifune is always known as sort of the hothead that's always blowing up. Right. And it's because of Rashomon and um, Seven Samurai. But yes, there's a ton of uh, of the Yojimbo type characters uh, that he's done. Um, actually, one of his first American roles, uh, he did a, a crossover samurai cowboy movie with Charles Bronson, where he's basically doing a version of his Yojimbo character. Okay. Um, okay. It, and so, and so he has so many different flavors of his personality that show up in his filmography and which makes him to me more i mean it's 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 almost reductionist even though i use the comparison to call him you know kurosawa's de niro because he's just so every time he comes at the screen it's and usually he doesn't deliver the same performance in subsequent films it's it's really it's really compelling right so but there's kind of like two kinds he's of not as much of a victim of his own image is what you're saying which is what happens sometimes with the de niro's and the decal sure sure there's kind of a story arc right where i the character changes right he starts one way ends up another way right but then there's sure. another story arc where the character does not change but the world changes around him right sure where the world comes to understand, hey, this guy was right all along. And he's like, yes. And he watches them all clap for him, right? In Yojimbo, he's consistent. It is the world that is full of shit. So every time, like, so when I think about Mifune and, and, and Kurosawa, it's, it's something about the dishonesty. The dishonesty of men, the dishonesty of people, the dishonesty of whatever, that when these two collaborate, that this is what really kind of like comes out. I mean, like, you know, Throne of Blood is another example. I mean, like this kind of like this, this, this dishonesty. And then like in, in, in Seven Samurai, okay, so this guy's obviously the weakest of the samurai. He's not really a samurai. He's kind of whatever. He's the one putting on the most errors, right? But by the very end, but, you know, in his, in his most climactic moment of that particular character, you know, he says like, okay, fine. You know, like you condemn the peasants. You do this. They're always trying to trick you. Well, what the fuck do you, you know, what do you expect? Like, look how you treat them. Like, da, 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 right? So he gives this big whole thing about, you know, dishonesty of the samurai themselves. So like, there's always this thing about, about like dishonesty and the, the and, and and meditations on dishonesty that I really associate with uh, with the Kurosawa Mifune uh, collaboration, you know. So even in Yojimbo, where he's like, you know, well, he, obviously he's clearly he's lying, but he's honest somehow. He's lying, but he's consistent. Yeah, right? so it's, it's, it's it's not it's a it's a, it's a tactical dishonesty, right? But, but like, but the real liars are the people he's lying to. They're the ones that are like just really just completely just bullshit. Uh, in Rashomon, yeah. isn't there a character arc, though? Because aren't we given to believe, isn't it in the Woodcutter's version, where he actually does feel a, a remorse about assaulting the wife? Isn't it only in the Woodcutter's version that we get that tale, that he, he expresses yeah. some level of remorse? She weeps after he assaults her, and it's not in his character, actually, to be so concerned about something like that, but is, yeah. am, am I remembering that right? But, but but well, the thing is, he he he's definitely very hesitant to kill the samurai. He's definitely, please come with me. Now, 
again, to speak to, you know, her, her value in that society, she says, of course, if you don't, I'll have to kill you. So please say yes. <laughs> um, but, but, but these characters, even, what Matt was saying, these characters. Yeah, but even like, so after he kills the samurai um, in that extremely realistic spearing with a sword, Oh. That's the other thing. In every in every version in every version of this, I'm kind of like, that is like you don't just faint on somebody if you want to stab them. You 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 don't throw a sword at somebody if you want to stab them. <laughs> which which is kind of the the funny thing about you know, as as someone who makes films and you know consumes films, the very artifice of film is that it seems, it's so ridiculous and theatrical that it seems to know. Mm-hmm. But, but what happens in the last telling after he kills the samurai is he's hyperventilating and he gets that wild animal look like, I have won you, you're mine. And she's, and she's horrified by him. And so what does he do? He grabs the sword and makes the killer, mm-hmm. but, can't, but can't catch her because again, this is the most ridiculous, uh, you know, samurai bandit story ever. <laughs> so. As you were talking to John, I'm remembering something. Do you guys remember this? That when he's first, when the bandit is first leading the samurai into this wooded area, you know, through the forest, initially, you know, when the samurai or when the, when the bandit kind of, you know, suggests, and it's all done with kind of the motion. There's no, there's nothing happening between them at this point verbally he just kind of gestures Mm. forward and the samurai kind of says you go you go ahead of me but when he gets close to the sword which i guess that's the irony it's sort of those who live by the sword die by the sword kind of analogy because that's his weakness he for the first time goes ahead of the bandit because Mm. he's so anxious to see this sword that he's going to get this amazing deal on but that's that it turns out that is his achilles heel that is his weakness one of the things I love about Kurosawa movies, this being another example of this, I love how much happens between the characters with just glances and stares, and there's no dialogue sometimes. But you'll hold on the person, just the stare, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and we did that, we did that in Scarefist, and some people were like, what the heck is going on? There's no talking. Why aren't they talking more? And why are they staring so much? And I'm like, yeah, Kurosawa. <laughs> because it's like, I love that about his willingness to speak with silence. We've lost some of that in, in the contemporary age of filmmaking, but there's a real beauty and philosophy and power in the stare and right. the silence that Kurosawa, right. in, you know, that he uh, incorporates. I love it. Actually, you, you, you mentioned a thing that in the direct remake, the worst thing, I mean, other than Paul Newman in Terrible Brownface um, of that movie is that everybody is just constantly talking. And like, there's no subtext. They're mm. like, you know, when, when we were back in Georgia or whatever, and, or, you know, Paul Newman will be like, like uh, talking about all of his exploits and you just, you don't need it. Yeah. Um, it's so funny you were talking about the swords because one of the other cheeky things I love about Kurosawa, um, and it, at this point it's cliche, but back in the fifties I could appreciate it, is um, <laughs> it, is uh, his use of um, just phallic imagery 
<laughs> like, no, it's 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 true. Like in Seventh Samurai, Tashir Mufuni is the is the most you know outspoken guy, and his sword is like twice as long as anybody else's. <laughs> so compensating, and then. Um, there's a Freudian then, term for that too. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the phallus. But, yeah, but but then the yeah. in this movie, in this movie, you see him um, when he sees the samurai for the and, and the wife for the first time. Mm. You you see him grab the sword on his leg, and then the sword just goes, Burp. and so <laughs> at the at this at the really cheeky. At this at this yeah. point, you know, it's it's like beyond cheesy that you know guns and swords are basically you know men's genitals. But back then in 1950s Japan, I find it very kind of cheeky, you know, and it's also just how much is implied uh, that um, he gets away with, um, kind of in in the way that you know. A lot of Christopher Nolan movies, when you think about what happens, these should be hard R movies. If you think about Rashomon content-wise, it should be like a really adult, you know, drama. It's it's very, very intense and graphic um, if you think about what's really going on. But Kurosawa uses insinuation and uh, suggestion in a way that everybody else just kind of shows you the thing and you're just like, it's it's less interesting. Well, yeah. we talked about this know, these oh. men. These men did not live by the sword; they lived near swords. Yes, <laughs> clearly did not live by the sword. I mean, these guys are not. Anyway, <laughs> I was going to say that we talked about this last time too. The, the because you know, relative to Gilda, which was 1946, um, one of the post noir noir film noir, post war film noirs. Um, we still had the Hayes Code in effect. Anything, even if it was coming from another country, it had, there had to be applications of the Hayes Code. So all of these insinuations, for example, that was, that was by way of this production code still being in effect. And it does make it more interesting in many ways, more cheeky. And also what, I, what occurred to me as you were talking, John, is iconoclastic too. Because despite the fact that this is not 8th century Japan, there is still a sensibility about the samurai and that history. So when you choose to show a less honorable side of it, I think you are being very iconoclastic. And I think we could overlook that easily mm -hmm. now because iconoclastic is the new uh, conformity. <laughs> yeah. But at this time, this was this the, the whole thing carries a lot of cheek because of that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah something that I wanted to bring up, completely different from what you're all have been talking about lately, is uh, going back to that cinematography. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. I heard that Kurosawa used mirrors, so this was natural uh, sunlight. But what he would do, and I think it was really great on a lot of the shots of Mifune to kind of create this uh, character. When someone is uh, usually um, uplit, it creates a, a scary uh, a sensation or of that thrilling, that thriller vibe that that they're you know some kind of villain or you know or um, 
a lot of the shots of Humphrey Bogart and the treasure of Sierra Madre that they're that they're crazed. You know, Humphrey Bogart was lit in that that kind of way. So when we get those 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 shadows um, hitting the face in that direction, it creates that that uh, that feeling of intensity. Um, so yeah, that we have that on Mifune, you know, as he's you know staring through the grove um, down at her. Um, we have a lot of the shots where artificial light is created, where he's lying down, and you know, uh, you brought up uh, Greek uh, imagery, Gene, and I think that that to me was very Greek. Uh, there's there's this character in Greek mythology, Endymion, or however it's pronounced, and I think that was very reminiscent of that, this famous sleeping Greek person. Um, so it's very idyllic, you know. That's that I guess that speaks to the to the mythic quality of the uh, of the bandits uh, recollection of the story is that we have a lot of this we have the sparkling uh, sun we have the music cues reinforce that um, but yeah I think even in some of the more realistic uh, renditions of that and there's a lot of handheld camera in this movie which I'm not really sure what the advent of that was in cinema but I think this this was probably uh, pretty early in the development of that. There's, I mean, there is, I mean, I think what's kind of amazing to watch, I mean, especially when we're going into the forest with the woodcutter, is that um, there's so many, um, obviously, dolly tracking shots, mm -hmm. um, you know, following the woodcutter into this space. Um, and some of them are really, are really rough. <laughs> like, like, there's a lot, like, it's not meant to be handheld, but it's just that you, you, I mean, I guess maybe one of the wood blocks must have fell out while the camera was going on. They're like, screw, <laughs> screw it, we got to make our day. I mean, there, what's wild to me is that Kurosawa is an extremely intentional filmmaker. And yet, even in this, my favorite of his films, it's not a technically perfect film that there's, there's times where the black and white cinematography kind of, um, it's so busy that you can't tell that there's the samurai and his wife over here and the bandit, you know, at the tree over here, you're just kind of looking at a lot of visual information. And um, it's not until you get to another close up of the samurai that you're like, oh, that's what that was. Um, and, um, oh yeah, it's, it, so, I mean, there's definitely these moments, especially early on in the film, where I almost feel like it's stylistically finding its footing, which I kind of like that more than, you know, an, a technically perfect film. I'd rather have an interesting one. Like, mm -hmm. just, just because you couldn't get that shot during the day. I mean, tell me about your idea. Um, and, you know, to go back to Nolan, I feel this movie really reminds me of, you know, Memento, his very first movie, which is all about the same things of the truth that you tell yourself to get through the day. Mm -hmm. And Memento is nowhere near as technically proficient as, you know, Inception or Dunkirk. Mm. Um, but there's something about Memento that still sticks with me in a way that sometimes spectacle doesn't always match up with. I love what you're saying right now because I think we've entered um, a phase where we take we can take story for granted now because mm -hmm. we we've we've developed such a deep understanding of story or we think we have 
to the point where often that can take a back seat to uh, to things like technical technical perfection or perceived technical perfection. I once developed a kind of a, a, a lyrical hokey pokey to every trailer I watch now. And I know I'm talking to a trailer all right. editor. All right. So I, <laughs> I'm stepping into some dangerous territory, but I want to say this because, and I'm not saying that you fall into this category either, but what I find with a lot of trailer editing is mm. there is there is such a perception of what a trailer is supposed to be now. We've sort of we've sort of mastered this idea of the trailer to the point where you start to see the same trailer over and over. And it is technically absolutely what we consider to be a good trailer, but I do not find it compelling. Maybe in part because of that, because it's the technical precision that becomes the focus rather than some kind of element of discovery. Yeah. Yeah, no, ev ev everything that I've ever done that I've been sort of proud of that's broken new ground has involved having to do something a little scary. I mean, there, there's this uh, joke um, that everybody in Hollywood wants to be the second person to do something for the first time. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and so that's the thing. I mean, I even heard like after we did the, you know, I got five on it version of us, which you know, the more I've thought about it, um, Rashomon is definitely very present in that film in terms of the reality you tell yourself. Um, but I heard, you know, after, I mean, no, the idea of doing like a horror version of I Got Five on it, I mean, before us would have just been thought of as ludicrous. And, mm. then, and then after that trailer came out, I kept hearing through the grapevine that people are, it's like, what's our version of us? What's our version of, like just around the industry. And, and, it, and it's true. It's like once something hits, you know, it, it, is, it is natural as, you know, a marketing person to go, well, that was successful. What's our version of that? And a, and a smart person will be like, how do we take the spirit of that? And a, you know, I guess less sophisticated marketer will go, how do we do exactly that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the best Rashomon movies that aren't Rashomon movies really, to me, are the ones that aren't exactly Rashomon, like Memento, um, like Gone Girl. Mm -hmm. Gone Girl. Gone Girl is totally a Rashomon movie um, in terms of, you know, switching perspectives. I mean, even if it's only two perspectives, it's still a Rashomon movie. Mm -hmm. That's but it's not, yeah, but it's not directly Rashomon. Right. It still draws its own because David Fitcher has that ability to do that as a filmmaker, which I think seven he did too. He took a lot of these kinds of psychological thrillers, but he, again, talking about perspective too, he, he played a bit with perspective in that movie, not to the same degree as Gone Girl, but he does, he does do that. And he, he, he has an interesting way of delving into things a little bit deeper, even though the, yeah. the movie is moving you forward, but he gives you some perspective to hold on to, and that's our story. You know, we lose perspective, we lose our story, because we also lose our characters, which is also story. I remember one time seeing a post, I can't remember if it was Terry Rosio or maybe John August or someone affiliated with them. Someone mm -hmm. said, well, now you're talking about character, not story. And the response was, 
but character is story. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking it is. about? It really is. It really is. And it's true of a trailer as much as it is of a movie. People think sometimes that a trailer is just, you know, the, the movie equivalent of a music video, but it's not. It is, it is a movie unto itself. You are creating an arc. You are creating a beginning, middle, and an end. There are three different acts within that trailer mm-hmm. and how you choose to develop that. Um, just because certain elements may be working. And in, in my hokey pokey version, it was, you know, you take your wide shot here, you've got a medium of your protagonist. And, and, I mean, literally, literally, like I got it down to this is literally what trailers are yeah. doing now. So if yeah. you can find something beyond that, like you were saying, if you can even find that one thing beyond that, that works for the audience, you've done something fantastic because you've yeah. gotten beyond what is working. But yeah. do we as storytellers, writers, and filmmakers, do we want to just do what's working or do we want to find something creative? And I think that's a great example of how Rashomon and Memento reflect storytellers finding their voice and finding a style and finding the characters and still discovering Mm. those elements because we've forgotten that sometimes that that's a very important part of cinema in fact i think it's a crucial part of cinema yeah yeah right right i think this yeah this uh narratives and memory i think it's really important in in watching this film it it makes us think back to all of the times that we heard a story and we knew that the people who were telling it were lying or that they had, uh, you know, invented part of it, or uh, we think back to or worry about ourselves. For example, I was thinking about this. Here's an anecdote, right? Is that uh, this this guy that I went to high school with reached out to me and he told me, you know, I see you, you know, you, you think you're some kind of champion for social justice, but you were a bully to me. And this really, you know, upset me for a day. And I was, I was thinking back in my mind as, oh man, you know, what if this, this whole thing that I've been telling myself for years and, and I reconciled it with other things, you know, clearly looking back is that, yeah, yeah, definitely. I made mistakes, you know, in the past and definitely am not as good of a person as, as I, as I've always thought I've been crafted this, this hero, you know, story for myself. Right. And, and I thought back and it, it troubled me so much. And I thought, you know, w- was I really a jerk to this guy? And then, and then I think someone, you know, finally, no, no, this guy was a jerk. You know, and, but I think that the, the two of these things could, you know, coexist, of course, this, this guy could have brought a lot of things onto himself and, and displaced a lot of the venom that was put onto him, you know, by others onto others, right? So yeah. he propagated, you know, this cycle, you know, even further. Um, but I think that is a really valuable experience when we can look back and, and question our own memory and, and put ourselves in a different mindset, different headset. Um, and I think that happens to, you know, a number of the characters. In this well, see, this is why I don't, I don't have these existential crises that, that David here has, because I don't <laughs> walk into the illusion that I'm a good person. I don't. I'm not. I mean, sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm bad. It, really? it really depends. But, it really depends but, on you. But would you? I mean, like, I mean, really, I mean, like you know, I could be, I could be a very bad guy. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but but, the, but the, you're the hero of your story. 
What's that? Yes. That, you're, that you are the hero of your story or that, you're, that your I story am, has meaning. I am you have a greater hero, purpose than others. I am the hero and anti-hero of my story. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on what story's going on. Absolutely. And that, Matt, is why, you know, when people critique, the, like, people's biggest critique of this film is it has a Disney in it. And I think kind of what you, uh, what you bring up here is why I, I don't actually think of the ending as a Disney ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of it as, you know, there are three lenses kind of presented of how to take your, you know, information. You can be like the priest who, you know, is very naive and, you know, has to keep faith in man, has to keep faith in the social order. You can be like the commoner who's just like, it's all bullshit. Um, Or you can be like the woodcutter who um, is constantly um, questioning themselves. And I don't really think this version of Rashomon says any three of these ways to go about your business is the right way. Because even though it has that shot of him, you know, being all, you know, sort of with bliss of like, I've done the right thing. I've taken this baby. I mean, when you listen to the music, it's still minor chords. It's, it's not, it's not like all, it's not like the music when we first see the Samurai's Wife, where you think the heavens have just opened up. It's, (laughs) it's, it's complex. It's, it's, it's saying that this is how he's choosing to go forward. You know, his response to the world is do better. Um, The, the priest's response to the world is, um, you know, society will win. And then, you know, the, the common person's uh, response is, I'm going to live. Yeah. And, and there is validity um, in terms of an ethos, if not actions, but an ethos of, you know, all of those perspectives. And then the question Rashomon just kind of gives you is, if, if it's not possible to know the exact truth, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And whether it's this movie, whether it's do the right thing, um, like my favorite movies don't say, this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. My favorite movies say, what are you going to do? And they become participatory. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's very interesting because like this idea of like an unreliable narrator. I mean, you talk about David Fincher earlier. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was, um, Fight Club, right? So, I mean, you have this kind of like, of course, you know, obviously that's kind of like, you know, this question of an unreliable narrator. You think you're watching one thing, it turns out to be something completely different. But what's so interesting with Rajaman is you have like a series of unreliable narrators. I mean, that, that's kind of like, and that's, I think it, it, it's, a, it's weird because in a way, like, um, talk about something being influential, but it's almost like, it's like almost like a mountaintop, right? Because it's not actually like this thing that everyone's like, oh, that's how you do it and repeat it because it's, just, it's a lot better than the things that they came to follow. Where's this guy going? <laughs> Oh, and David Lewis? He's got business to take care of. That I I like, I think that's what's interesting. See, as you both are talking, and I don't think what you're saying is in discord. It's just taking away something slightly different. In in Matt's view that is the ending of this is this is the right thing to do and everything gets resolved um and that is one way of looking at it 
But as John, John points out, there is this element of there is still discord. There is still they, these minor chords are still playing. Even if he is walking off with this child, he's walking off with the dagger. He's probably going to sell if he hasn't already. He mm -hmm. may still continue to pillage <laughs> to, to, to feed his family. We have not resolved society, that's for sure. He's still walking away. The rain is still falling. There's still a sense that something is disintegrating in this gateway of this supposed civilized society. So you're right. I don't think it is. I don't think it is the, I think there's a partial revel resolution in the man carrying the baby away that there's still this hope of innocence, but it's, it definitely is not fully resolved. I didn't get that sense either. That I just don't feel like people that are that dramatic are that good. You know what I mean? Like, like if he was like more quiet and like more like stoic and being like, God damn it, I'm gonna do the right thing here. Right. Then I would believe that, okay, he's gonna walk off the baby's gonna take care of it. Right. But somebody was like, Oh, what does it mean? No, 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 no. That was the priest. Oh. The, the priest was like, oh. no, thanks to you. I can keep my faith in that. And he's like, he don't participated in some of that shit too, though. I mean, he was very like dramatic about it. Very like, oh, you know, there's no honor. There's all everyone's lying. It's all lies. You know, like I feel like uh, no, he just said, I don't understand. I don't understand. So he's really like so he doesn't he doesn't know his own soul. Mm. All right, all right. It was, it was, I, I, read, I, I liked what, I, I liked what you were describing, David, about the cinematography, because some of the elements I didn't know about how he was using mirrors um, to refract and reflect light to create maybe a, a, almost like a hypernatural mm. uh, scenario. Because we are, we are, I think we're always given the sense that this is a natural setting, but within that natural setting, he uses, like you were describing, like sometimes the light is, is reflecting a certain way off of the bandit's face right, right. or 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 to create almost like a, a multiple sense of light sources with mirrors you know so for for almost like a hyper reality that's interesting i did get that sense in the in the wife's recount did you notice that the light at times looked brighter in her yeah. reflection did you notice that guys because it did. I, I noticed that very clearly that the light on her face in particular, like she was trying to, for herself, recreate a sense of something still being innocent and pristine, despite these very unpristine circumstances, right? That there's like for the wife, her part of her survival is maintaining some level of purity, something pure, which she knows she's lost if she ever had it. Because we never mm. get the set. We never even convinced entirely that she was ever pure. But the she wolf. has to certainly create that image. Yeah. As with all the characters, really. And, and like the dagger stealing woodsman, he, he should survive. But we have some audience, we have some uh, um, statements from the audience. Yeah. Uh, or questions and, 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 uh, and ideas. Comments. The audience. There we go. Here we go. Um, I'm not, some of these are just kind of like technical things like, oh, I had a computer problem. But, but, but here, here, here we go. Here we go. Um, Thank you for comes, that insight. Nice. This one comes from Nigel R. Mitchell. Ideals are beliefs. Therefore, beliefs will survive the truth. Oh, whoa. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Is that a question? Philosopher. No. That, it's, it's that a man is a philosopher. Yeah, yeah. You are so, a philosopher. Uh, ideals were, will good. survive the truth. Ideals are beliefs, and therefore beliefs will survive the truth. <laughs> um, 
for better or for worse. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to point to, you know, in all this discussion of, of truth and, and the relativity of truth, I'd like to point to my man, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, he put it very clearly. He said, you know, you want to talk about truth, you head over to the philosophy department. Here we deal in fact. Oh. So, yeah. <sighs> Boom. Boom. That, is a, that is a tall order, sir. <laughs> Especially on a podcast about Rashomon. I really want David next time to wear the hat, wear the wear the fedora. Oh I want the fedora. Oh <laughs> fedora, my friend. All right, so we got and from Andrew Cedillo says, "This isn't how I remember it." Oh well, you know, I think that's the point, right? Yeah. Valid. Valid. Uh, Douglas uh, W. Jacob says, "In Redbeard, Mafune plays a very mature doctor." working with the poor. Yep. He takes on a young, arrogant doctor who thinks he should be working for the emperor. I knew nothing about Redbeard until my brother brought my attention to it. It's quite astonishing. And maybe the last thing Mufuni did was Kurosawa. It was, that, that, that was their last movie together. And, you know, uh, they, before uh, Kurosawa passed away, no, before, before Kurosawa passed away, Mufuni had uh, talked about you know, re-collaborating with him at some time. They had a really bad falling out. Mm. Um, it's kind of why, you know, whatever you think of the Irishman, I'm glad that we got another De Niro Scorsese, like just to say, okay, they, they got back together. We never got that with Kurosawa and Mifune. Um, Redbeard was their, their very last um, collaboration. Mm, interesting. What, yeah, which was sad because Kurosawa, I mean, both of them kind of went through a bit of a dry period. Um, I mean, Kurosawa had his worst uh, film just a few years, I mean, worst received critically and box office wise film a few years ago and almost took his own life. And wow. yeah, yeah. Um, Mufune um, eventually was working on like series television. I mean, and it, it wasn't, uh, he was, neither of them apart ever rose to the level that they, you know, as collaborators that they had, um, except of course, you know, in Kurosawa's Twilight Years, um, George Lucas um, and Francis Ford Coppola, you know, basically helped get him funding to do Kagamusha, to do Ron, and to do a lot of his, you know, late sort of classics. Interesting. You know, it's funny, John, as you were talking about them having a falling out too, I suddenly was thinking of another pairing we didn't mention, which is the, uh, the uh, Werner Herzog Klaus Kinski pairing. Oh, geez. <laughs> Famously. Uh, I, uh, that I don't, was really something. My I, don't think... I was going to kill Klaus, but stopped by a dog. <laughs> I don't think they tried to murder each other. I mean, the they, he, he, oh no 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 oh no I oh, oh no you mean <laughs> <laughs> I did want to talk about one other actor by the way um is Takashi Shimura who plays the woodcutter is another mm. frequent Kurosawa collaborator he plays yeah. the he plays the um sort of the de facto leader of um the the samurai and seven samurai um, he has a beautiful movie with Kurosawa called um, Ikiru, um, where he plays a man uh, who has, you know, terminal cancer and is basically trying to get through. He's a bureaucrat and he's trying to get through all the bureaucracy 
for his last thing, which is to um, make a uh, playground. It's yeah. it's yeah, I terribly. Bet Matt would hate that too. I love this. <laughs> I love Akira because I believe that that man, that kind, gentle, good man with a life that is killing him, right, would come to those things. What I don't like about Rashaman is I don't believe these people <laughs> like are worth a damn, right? And like oh, these individuals wow. me for the past hour and a half are horrible. And I'm fine with them being horrible. <laughs> I will revel in how horrible they are. But then don't tell me that they're good. Like don't like don't tell me that we're gonna redeem them. And that's just my opinion. That's just my that's opinion. Maybe the baby. I love Ikiru. I love Ikiru. <laughs> yeah. Well, not the baby. The baby's not terrible. Baby hasn't done anything. Yet. Yet. But, yet. <laughs> no, 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 no. it seemed like it was it seemed like it was a, a baby born to wealth you know in this and this uh class you know caste system so i don't you know i don't know yeah that baby might have you know been, <laughs> been chiseling already but no 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 it's a beautiful film is whatever those, I, those I, tears I, I those cries were all fabricated it's always these things <laughs> And it's not, it's not just Kurosawa. There's a lot of people, a lot, a lot of filmmakers, a lot of novels over the years. Always, there was always this ending where it's like, it's got to be okay. And like, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not okay. You know, you took me on this journey and like, you know, and like, let's, let's go to it. Let's go to its logical conclusion. You know, let's, let's take this to its logical conclusion and let's do it. And then, and maybe that'll motivate us, motivate us to be better. Like, my God, look how horrible that was. And like, how am I like that? Like, how am I, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm. you know, Romero described his own Rashomon experience with somebody like that. That's actually an episode of Thirty Rock. Did you know that? Oh, okay, all you right. Just lived an episode of Thirty Rock. <laughs> I should, my really my life is often meant for adaptation. <laughs> no, no, actually, no, you didn't live this episode of Thirty Rock. You're oh. the, guy that, the guy that accused you of being a bully. Yeah, episode of Thirty Rock. Like oh. uh, the main. His life is often. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, was it borrowed? I think people oh. call me out. I usually usually agree unless it's like no. blatantly not. Okay. Oh, oh. Um, I want to talk about that final shot of the movie. Um, I think it's a gorgeous, gorgeous mm -hmm. shot. Um, what I some of the things that I really love about it is that we have the gate and it's backlit. We have, you know, I can see clearly now the rain is gone, right? So from from out of the forest, from out of the darkness and trouble of the storm, we have the sun, you know, brighter days ahead, right? And the monk is sitting there at the gate, so, and he's backlit. So I think this is really interesting is that, you know, a lot of the imagery of the monks, you know, that they would be standing at these gates or in these temples, with, you know, in, in, in heaven, right? So that's kind of like a heavenly image that he's backlit here. And he's finally given all of the dignity right? He finally has um, this confidence, right? So he's become um, iconic now. He has become iconically a monk where before he was uh, more human, more valuable, more troubled, you know, he was in close-ups and wedding or, you know, in these different positions, but now he's framed classically as a monk would be in the tradition, right? And then, so then you have um, that, that actor um, coming forward and I think it's something kind of interesting that that I've heard um, YouTube uh, reviewers, um, Renegade Cut, a few others, um, I, I forgot to credit you. Um, but what I think is interesting is that the beggar comes in, uh, presumably from the audience, he comes in uh, from the right of the camera uh, into uh, the Rashomon gate, 
right? And that introduces us um, to what's going on. And um, similarly, the movie ends with um, this character coming from the gate to, and he's headed left to the camera as following. So it's almost like we've come into the film as an audience and now we're going out. So I think it's, it's a visual dynamic, a visual representation of this idea that we're supposed to take this with us. Like, you know, he's joining us and that as we would exit the cinema, we would leave with this hope, we would leave with this message that, you know, better days are ahead. And I think what's crucial to his character is not just him taking this baby, but that before that even happens is that he admits guilt. He takes responsibility for something that's happened. Um, you know, the monk, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, they get into an argument and instead of being embittered by this, um, you know, he, he, uh, he comes to a, a reconciliation with the monk and with himself with his own actions. It's like he forgives himself for this act of stealing the dagger. He forgives himself for lying um, about it. So it's like, you know, he's finally, as you will, cut through all of the bullshit. Um, it's, it's also, this is the first time that anybody else has shown anybody empathy because he says, because um, the, the, the priest says, I'm sorry for, I regret what I said. And then the woodcutter says, you know, it's it's only natural to be suspicious of people on a day like this. Yeah. And it, it really is the first time any character has shown another character empathy in the entire film. And and the fact that you have that one act of empathy of seeing through somebody else's eyes is just so what just happened that all of a sudden I can keep my faith in men. And, you know and then don't mention it now that you say that you guys what occurred to me because what occurred to me is as david was talking was that he's right that there's this sense of redemption for the character but only by the admission of his guilt and john what you're saying is the redemption that ability for him to to be redeemed his admission of guilt alone isn't enough, but it's also the empathy of the monk or the priest that gives him permission to experience that redemption. Sure, and then the and then the empathy becomes, um, you know, multi-directional. Um, uh, he forgives the priest for assuming the worst, and the priest forgives um, the the woodcutter uh, for you know his sin of taking some dead samurai's dagger, which in the grand scheme of things is is so morally outweighed in the priest's view i would argue justifiably of i will provide for this child yeah um knock on wood that 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 all goes well it's good how did the baby get there <laughs> yeah no that's that's dumb unaddressed question like, say it they, the implication they is that this couple, because doesn't the priest say something to the effect of this couple that could they couldn't take care of the baby? They left. They I left. I think they're just they're just speculating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're all speculating, and, and, but no. And how do we know the priest? I mean, how you know, like, how do we know that? I mean, maybe this is like you know, 
I don't know. I mean, like, how do we, how do we believe the, I, you know? Yeah. The beginning of a new story. <laughs> what, what really happened? Like, what's going on? What's like, you know, what, what, you know, like this, uh, you know. Yeah, so he, he put that baby in a corner. He just, he wrote himself into a corner. <laughs> so he put a baby there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought nobody puts baby in a corner. I guess. Uh, oh my! Yeah. When I referenced that right in front of Kurosawa, I can't believe I just referenced Dirty Dancing right in front of. Kurosawa. <laughs> That's, that pairing's never gonna happen. Matt, please, please say the say the next thing that I I want. The next thing is that. To close this, uh, to close this the, the next thing is that yes, we we have been talking about this movie for longer than the movie. Than the and, movie and what? And what? And I want I want everyone's interpretation of this conversation. You know, no. like, well, you say it then. Oh, say what you and we've say. had the time of our lives. Oh my God, I would <laughs> never say that. And I and I owe it to none of you. Although I had a sense that's where it was going, I told my brain just went. <laughs> my left and right ventricles escaped. Uh, because I had a feeling that was coming. I'm not thinking about Patrick Swayze, and I should not be thinking about Patrick Swayze. Now you got me thinking about Roadhouse. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So, you know, we have been talking about this film longer than uh, I mean. Oh yeah. Wow. So it's about time. uh, So, so it's about time for our final interpretation of uh, how we remember the film and. I remember this conversation or whatever you want to, whatever you want to ruminate upon. Um, I'll go first. This has been a, you know, The Rashomon is a classic. Everyone should check it out. It's a, it, it's a, it's a classic world cinema uh, for a reason. It's, it's not an unearned reputation. Um, it was one of Kur- Kur- someone really kind of considered Kur- Kurosawa's first really like major masterpiece. I mean, you, know, you look at some of his earlier work, there's definitely a lot of, lot, lot to be, lot to be, lot to be seen there, but this is the first one that really put him on the world scene. And uh, it's not by accident. And so it's it's a beautiful film. It's an incredible film. It's a it's a meditation on on how we know what to be, why we believe the things we believe, and why we want things, why we want what we want believed about us put out there. I mean, to me, I mean, when you look at the case of the bandit, that's the most that to me that's the most clear one because he's not even trying to plead his innocence. He's not even trying to save himself. He's not trying to he's not trying to whatever. He's actually projecting something. That he wants to be remembered as, and so why? Why does he want to be thought of that way? Why does why does why does uh, why does a woman want to be thought of as, as, as she wants to be thought of? Why does the, the dead samurai want to be thought of that way? Why do we want people to think the things we want them to think about us? I mean, that's what this is really a meditation on. Why do we want people to hold these thoughts about us? What in us needs to have that reflected back upon us um, through the eyes of the world? You know, and, and why is that? So it's a great film. Check it out. A good that's a good summation because as you're talking i'm thinking that's absolutely right like what is our story the story that each one of us are creating you know in the joseph campbell hero of a thousand faces kind of um kind of um mood and tone and in this jungian sense of archetypes like we do embrace a lot of different uh selves and we can see ourselves from very different perspectives other people can see us from very different perspectives. I do see the film noir element that John brought up because what occurs to me is that was one of the things about film noir that was very signature about film noir was that you didn't have, you had unsavory characters. You didn't have savory characters for the most part. And that was that the studios were actually very reluctant for that reason to put their stars 
into films noir because they most people want to be thought of as the hero, not the anti-hero. Of course, then there's Matt. Matt's all right. Matt is our bard in our iconoclast who actually <laughs> loves to embrace both. Um, but but you know, I, why I, is that? Um, and yeah. you know, I think this movie does reflect that because I think actually what we're seeing is we are seeing the unsavory side of these of supposed savory characters. Bandit might be a slight, you know. Uh, exception to that rule but for the most part even the bandit in his braggery he's got a certain reputation he wants to uphold what he considers to be heroic is to be the best bandit and the best rapist I'm sorry to say but that is part of his character you know uh, he brags and boasts about the women he's gonna have and he's already had you know so everybody's definition of hero heroism differs um, absolutely, I think, a, a quintessential film, not only of the Criterion Collection, but as Matt said, highly influential film, influential on filmmakers like Scorsese, and probably Lynch, I would say, is a good guess, and, and, and others, some of whom we've mentioned. It's interesting that this film would have come out the same year as Sunset Boulevard, uh, mm -hmm. which offended yeah. a lot of people's sensibilities, which was quite a breakthrough film, which prompted Louis B. Mayer to say to Billy Wilder, you bastard! <laughs> How dare you bite the hand that feeds you? How could you portray this industry in this way? You know, always <laughs> Louis B. Mayer trying to create these musicals with uh, with Mickey Rooney and, and Judy Garland and isn't America wonderful and isn't it pure and isn't it apple pie? Isn't it all the things we always wanted it to be? And then you have films like Rashomon come along and, and shatter those images. And I think we need films like that now as much as we needed films like that in the 1940s the 1950s so absolutely must see and um may i also add as a woman that i really like those crazy like eyebrows <laughs> like i just have to say like i i would think that would be kind of cool to do anyway but that's my that's my that's my one fashion statement of the day i, I love the eyebrows um but yeah definitely quintessential and definitely uh, worth watching for sure um so i'd have to say that uh barring the rain machine that was used for um the uh the framing device scenes at the rashomon gate uh this film is a wonderful exercise in how much you can accomplish with so little um the fact that this could be made on a relatively low budget right is just incredible that this is just the art of filmmaking and story and craft distilled into its simplest elements and being able to make so much out of that um, is really remarkable. Watching this film for the second or third time um, and seeing that characters were a lot more complex than I thought they were initially. That you, There are a moment of scenes that we pointed out that you could read a number of different ways. You can see the transitions from one emotion to another. And it's the complexities of this that bring out that this film is this deconstruction of class, of gender, of uh, even belief uh, can come into play. That all of these things, I think, make it this modernist masterpiece it is. And as far as in going and understanding its message of the relativity of truth and how we bring our own things into um, whatever we witness or we recollect um, in delivering uh, social commentary uh, to point out that um, in a lot of cases uh, where people dispute uh, acts 
of criminal acts or uh, acts of violence or, or, or of injustice. Um, you know, people bring up that kind of argument of moral relativity, right? So we're left with this question of, well, do things actually happen? And in seeing the idea of filming things, right, is that this is, brings us closer towards this notion of objective reality, right? Um, but the unfortunate thing is, is that even in cases where things are filmed, such as the murder of George Floyd by a police officer um, or by a number of police officers, um, is that the unfortunate thing is that even in the face of this objective reality, we are still left with something of this Rashomon effect that people, that some people, they see this and, and their heart bleeds. They, you know, they, they, they're, they're filled with uh, tears, with anger, um, with a range of emotions and others are still unmoved. Um, so I think this film is very informative um, in, in these kinds of cases and a wide range of cases and pointing out that um, even when there is, when we are presented by objective reality, that reality still is what we make of it. And I think the challenge and the hope of this film, what this film gives us is that reconciliation is that admitting guilt, admitting, you know, facing the truth, um, facing the truth um, then the limitations of the truth and empathy, I think really is where it comes down with, I think the disconnect um, that people have with objective reality is ultimately their lack, their lack of empathy. It's amazing work, sir. I, and, oh my, who is that? Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have to, you know, kind of say, uh, you know, it, this is a, this is, a, is an amazing time, you know, where there's probably more momentum than possibly in, in my lifetime of, you know, systemic change to address, you know, be it police brutality, be it um, accountability. And, uh, you know, I think the Rashomon effect is something that's not just, you know, an eyewitness testimony of crimes, but something that people have to, you know, get over when it comes to, well, I've never been harassed by the police. I've never seen racism. I've never ex experienced white privilege. I've never, um, I haven't seen this in, you know, my little world. And, you know, it is the same facts that another person sees just, but through, you know, a lens of what is my personal narrative that I have to claim. And why do I have to claim that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the answer, you know, right now is that it's taking, taking people too long um, to understand that that answer has been white supremacy. Um, but even in this moment, uh, even those of us who have recognized that um, still every day realize that there's ways we come up short and, you know, how do we be an ally? When is our voice appropriate and when, it is, when is it not? When, do, when, when is it our place to speak up and when do we need to, you know, share the mic? And the fact is, you know, Rashomon is not comforting, but worth remembering because it says none of us are perfect. 
And to pretend that either leads to despair or being dishonest with yourself. And whether or however you proceed forward, you must proceed. And um, you will proceed with the code um, and the best you, you, you can um, really achieve is to learn more and do better. And that's not a Disney ending. That's a very hard ending that has to um, be revisited every single day. And that's why, you know, Rashomon um, probably, you know, more than ever continues to have a resonance for me. That's cool. Well, I want to thank everyone for having joined us. Uh, I don't thank you, John. Um, and you want to thank John, David? I mean, because you, you give me a little weird look there. <laughs> thank you, thank John. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I just want to make sure that you're going to introduce next week's film. I'm going to introduce next week's film. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you for your micromanagement, David. <laughs> On this thing I put together. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, but next uh, we will be joined again. We're not, I don't know, maybe we'll be joined by somebody, but I'm picking the movie. We're next week, we're going to see, uh, we're going to be reviewing The Chimes at Midnight uh, by Orson Welles. So um, it's a movie basically from the perspective of Falstaff. So um, it's a movie of betrayal. It's a movie of, um, you know, where, where you take a, this character, you know, Henry who was you know, in Shakespeare, it comes off really good. But when you actually cobble his story together from the perspective of Falstaff, you see maybe that's <laughs> not the case. And that's my, that's my kind of film. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, next week. Um, thank you so much, John, for having uh, joined us. David, do you want to bid your guest uh, say anything beyond thank you to our guest? Oh, I just want to thank you that, yeah, I mean, here we are, what? This is episode six, very early on in this whole process. And the fact that you were one of the dream people that I wanted to have on this program. And I wow. wanted to thank you for for all of your support um, that you've lent to me and, and very, uh, multiple members of our community. And um, that, that we did this is just so great. Yeah, very yeah. happy about it. I, I really I'm impressed by the insightfulness of everybody. I mean, I this was very enjoyable, guys. Uh, really great stuff. I mean, I, I, it leaves me with a lot to consider. And I love how you guys, I, great choice for the timing, no doubt about it you know, how it pertains to now, not only in terms of cinema, but in terms of our world. Really good job. Yeah. Really good job. Thank you all for having me on. And I'm going to put on my top of my resume, uh, David Romero's <laughs> dream person. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now we need this cue of music. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there was no music. All right. So I think that's true. All right, everybody. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> 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 <laughs>